This is the show that brings to the forefront newsmakers, entertainers, and those making a difference in our lives and in our world. Each week is a new adventure with topics ranging from the most serious and cutting edge to the most lighthearted and entertaining. This is Taking Care of Business with Richard Solomon. Greetings, everyone. Richard Solomon, Taking Care of Business, WCWP 88.1 FM. We are continuing our coverage of the COVID-19 and the pandemic, and we are bringing tools and resources to the WCWP LIU listening community. Today, we have a great person, uh, David Grohn. David Grohn is an author, a speaker, a blogger. Uh, he's, he's a deep thinker, and he's got a very unusual perspective on the pandemic, uh, partly because of the way he was raised by his parents, who had extraordinary difficulties in Amsterdam during the German invasion and occupation of Holland. So without further ado, David Grohn, thank you for being uh, on our show. Thank you, Richard. Thank you for that, that wonderful introduction. I'm, I'm happy to hear you're doing well. You sound good. I hope you're doing, uh, doing well during the pandemic. Well, we're trying to get all the resources out to our listeners because there's a, there's a lot of challenges out there. It's very challenging uh, from all of the people who are out there in the hospitals on the front line. So a good shout out to those people, Absolutely. to all the parents who are taking care of children and the online learning, which is a struggle and a challenge, uh, to the people who are doing the, the retail work, the grocery stores, uh, the people getting online, the people who are uh, in the supply chain, truck drivers, uh, the police are keeping us safe, the fire, EMS, all the people. Uh, you know, I was lucky enough to interview the commanding officer of the UN, USNS Comfort. And uh, that was really very moving to me. Uh, we have a lot of resources up on YouTube. And by the way, David, right. uh, when we first met a long time ago on the radio, uh, we had a much smaller uh, audience and it's grown quite a bit. Uh, oh, it's, uh, we hit over 100,000 on uh, YouTube just uh, recently. So that's kind of cool. Oh, that's exciting. So, Very good. I'm not surprised, but it, it's good to hear. So speaking of YouTube, if the people out there take a look at Holland's Heroes Correct. or Jewface, those are the uh, the key words to take a look. David is the author of a book called Jewface. It's about his uh, parents. And uh, we did a very extensive interview with him. And we also had a very, very moving interview with him and his mom. Uh, that's also posted up on YouTube as well. I was very fortunate many, many years ago, to be in Zonfort in Holland. And I got to meet uh, David's parents actually in Holland and went through a, a walkthrough of the town where his dad uh, showed me all the history of what happened to him and his family uh, during World War II. And the proper way to eat herring. And the and, and not only that, so we went to the herring guy. <laughs> and... You know, for people that don't know, it's kind of cool. They give you like a hot dog bun, like like an American-style hot dog bun. They put the herring on, you know, like they lay it flat, like if it's, if it was if the hot dog, you know, substitute. And they put like, I forget it was like relish or something. And it was it was really good. But, but. Um, probably, it, it was probably chopped onion. Probably. Yeah. But, but all I can tell you is that I was assured <laughs> that it was the best herring in town. <laughs> well, what you might not remember, I don't know if. There's different uh, fish places in Holland did it differently, but the traditional way was that they would keep it on, keep it, keep it full with the tail, and somebody would you would pick it up by the tail and eat it that way. I don't it's know really if I, quite something. I don't quite know if I was that authentic. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so um, I'm happy though that you mentioned about the um, about all the people that have done so much during this time. Um, obviously, 
anybody with with any type of uh, is, is taking a, paying any t- close attention at all or paying any type of attention knows that uh, there are people out there who have been nothing short of heroic during this time. Um, obviously, um, the first responders, the the medical professionals, have just been beyond beyond amazing. But I, I think that one of the things that's been what I've what I've recognized during this time, and I've tried to share with people, is that every single person can do something positive during this time. The key is to not focus so much on themselves, but to find someone else that they can help. And um, you, you, I find that besides the fact that there is a ripple effect to that, each and every person who does that also gets through this easier, because if you're spending more time looking for people who really genuinely need help and do something to help them, Uh, you accomplish much more than if you're uh, being self-indulgent and just worried about what's happening in your life. So you've been writing during this whole pandemic, have you not? Absolutely, consistently. Okay, and your theme from what we've talked about and what I've read, but what we talked about in pre-production is it's just positive, just being positive. Um, And is, is that a response to... Anything in particular, are you drawing upon your own family strength? So it's interesting. Over the years that I've, when I've been, when I've written um, and I've blogged and I put things out on Holland's Heroes, whatever it is, or put it out onto social media, uh, often I've just written what I see happening based on whether or not it's a political opinion or a world politics opinion or general knowledge, general information, whatever it is. Or if it's relevant to uh, personal accounts of uh, passing away of somebody, remembering of remembering somebody, or writing about the book. But during the course of the pandemic, I've had a specific agenda, and that specific agenda, and I've I've come right out and said that my specific agenda is to do nothing else but write about supportive, encouraging, and hopeful things. And the reason for that is, first of all, that I I, I truly believe that there are enough people out there who are shouting at the wind, so to speak. And, and talking about um, who they're angry at and who they blame. That's, those people are a dime a dozen. But uh, you, can really, you can really do something very positive if, you, if your thought process is that you want to see if you can help people. And yes, it's, you, you mentioned it. I, I did, this is something which I, without any question, uh, I've drawn from my parents. My, um, both of my parents uh, went through five years in Holland of Nazi occupation. My father was in the Dutch resistance. My mother, who looked extremely Jewish, which is a large reason why the name of the book is Jewface, could not really be out in the open. And um, they dealt with things over the course of five years that most people never come close to dealing with. They saw, they saw some, very, some things that a lot of people wouldn't even survive, and they, and they obviously they made it through it. And they always appreciated the basic things in life that were enough to make you happy. That's being healthy, that's having food on the table, having people that you love, having friends that you can talk to, and, and just being having an opportunity, just having a chance for tomorrow. And if you, if you spread that message, it's, it is a contagious message, just like blame and just like anger is a contagious message. So is the message of support and, and, um, and, and, and hope very much so. So could you summarize a little bit your parents' experience? Because for the people who may not have heard our original broadcast from way back when, um, or have read 
in any of your blogs or your books or anything like that. Could you kind of just give just a thumbnail sketch of, of what they had to overcome? Of course. So uh, when the war broke out, um, uh, they, um, what they were dealing with, my father was 20, my mother was 18. And um, my father was, um, in a, grew up in a, in what was most, the closest thing that Amsterdam had to a, to a ghetto, Jewish ghetto. Grew up in a very orthodox home. My mother grew up in a more um, Dutch, wealthier, Jewish, positively Jewish, but less actively Jewish than my father's neighborhood. But the irony of it is that my father looked like a typical Dutchman, and my mother was clearly a Jewish woman. And my mother lost her mother when she was 13 years old. She had a younger brother who was 10 at the time. And she was, it was her, she, her, her mother uh, and her brother, her, her father and her brother with her when the war broke out. My mother was a nurse working in a Jewish hospital. And my father, uh, knowing what had taken, was taking place, kind of really kind of understanding it before a lot of people did, immediately joined the resistance and basically worked, was basically underground. Picked up by the Nazis a number of times, managed to get away uh, remarkably. And um, used to go to the hospital where my mother worked and uh, played ping pong. He noticed her. My mother, who was engaged to someone else before the war, uh, the, the man she was engaged to was taken away by the Nazis and killed. Uh, but when my father went to the hospital, he took a liking to my mother. And my mother, knowing that nobody that she had in her life was there anymore, um, was, was very much, uh, you know, she needed a friend. And that's how she looked at my father. And my father obviously had... Had different feelings, but my mother really was happy to, to see him as a friend. Uh, to get out of Amsterdam, uh, there was uh, some really some incredible things that had to take place. But my father basically helped my mother fi- go from one place to another, hiding in different locations uh, until the last 16 months of the war, in which he found my father found a house of a family in the Dutch countryside that hid my mother in the back of the workplace. The work, the, he was a builder of the man, and he built a room underground for my mother where she slept for 16 months until the war was over. And I always like to say that my father said my saved my mother's life during the war, and my mother saved my father's life every day after the war. True perseverance. Um, Absolutely. Just true perseverance. How did that translate to you and to your siblings? So there, uh, the... The character and personalities of Holocaust survivors. Uh, there are certain, there are similarities. Uh, there are there are negative impacts, of course, that it has on people to to be raised by people who have um, gone th- through such such a hell. There's different levels of hell. Uh, my parents never uh, were in concentration camps. Um, while I know people who were raised by people who were in concentration camps, it's, it's a different level of hell. But it is a hell nonetheless, and it it offers it, it gives you uh, a few different feelings. First of all, it gives you a a feeling that you will defend the Jewish people till your death. Uh, that's the feeling you have. To what extent you're capable of doing that, you, know, hope, you hope to never find out. But it is part of what the way you feel. The other the other thing that you that you feel is that um, you realize how lucky you are to have those things in life that are just basic. It gives you it gives you a strength during a time like this, for example, where you basically look at it and you say, 
this really, I mean, sure, it's bad. It's awful for the people, the, the tragedies for the people who have lost lives. That's, that's unquestionably a tragedy. But to not be able to leave your house to go to work, but to be able to freely go to the store and freely go for a walk and, and have your health and just wait till, till a virus passes or, or things get better, it's not an ideal way of living. But when you grow up in uh, learning and understanding how bad things can get for people, you have you you deal with this better. It just gives you um, a perspective that uh, you want to spread and, and pass on to other people. Do you notice the same resiliency in your siblings? I do. What's interesting about it is I actually find that the reason I know for sure that the reason that I'm handling it. Um, I don't. I almost. I almost don't like to say this because I don't want to say it in a way that I don't feel any conceit or I'm not patting myself on the back for this. But the reason I'm blessed to be able to handle this well is um, I, because of my parents, and the confirmation of that is is easy for me. I just have to look to my. I'm the youngest of five. I look to my three older brothers and my older sister, and um, they're they're doing well. They're they're handling it. They're dealing with it, and they're not. Um, their perspectives are solid, and, and it's it's quite evident that the five of us, and by the way, it's not usually that evident as it is now, but it's quite evident that the five of us were raised by the same two people. It's, it's more evident now than any time I've ever seen in my entire life. Are you the only author, blogger, speaker in the sibling group? Um, I am the and not, in, not I would say that's not not entirely. I mean, I have an older brother, my older brother Marcel, who is a um, a, a law partner in, in Philadelphia, and he's also been very big in politics, and he's spoken uh, on numerous occasions, uh, done a lot of public speaking, and, and I've seen some of the things that he's written. But he hasn't not in terms of writing a book or in getting anything published. But he's um, he does very well with that. Uh, but yeah, I mean, for as far as somebody who is taking it to the point where it's, um, I feel it's my mission. I'd say in that sense, I am the only one. Okay. Yes. Now you you write on different platforms. There's books. There's blogs. Is there anything else? Um, well, no. I mean, right now, I, I it, it's it is either uh, my it is the, it either it's either a book, either books, um, or it's a with Holland's Heroes. The website, as you mentioned. Uh, I also what have is that a, website? What's the website? Holland's Heroes. Is that a website? Is that Facebook? What is that? It is a website. It's Holland. Actually, it's HollandsHeroes.com. Got it. Okay. Yeah. And um, I also have on Facebook a, a uh, Facebook page that I, I developed many quite a few years back called uh, Global Coalition for Israel. Uh, 4,500 members. And um, I put it together around the time that the Three boys were killed. Three young teenage boys were killed in, in Israel in a terrorist attack. They picked up in the car and they found them dead weeks later. And um, at that point in time, I started that website, and it's uh, I use it as a as a forum to primarily do things to promote Israel, to to expose negativity against Israel, and for anyone who wants to put anything out there helpful and positive beyond the subject of Israel, Israel as well. I, I don't. I don't uh, allow it to be a political site. I don't allow it to be a site used for bashing people uh, back and forth. I think there's enough of that. I'm not disputing anybody's right to, to speak their mind, but uh, that doesn't happen on, on Global Coalition for Israel. And Holland's Heroes, 
um, like as we as we've spoken about already, I it's um, over the years I've done different uh, different posts for different reasons, but over the course of the last couple of months, it has prime almost entirely been the positive and supportive and encouraging message that I'm trying to get out there. Is it challenging to keep being positive as this thing wears on? I love that question. Um, I, there's a, there's a really, there's a real specific reason why I love that question. And it's because I had one day, uh, I, I call it, uh, I really do call it a dark, the darkest, one of the darkest days I've ever had in my life, actually. Uh, not because anything specifically happened to me or that it was anything specifically happening in my life, but because it was the one day during the course of this entire situation in which it got to me. Uh, and I remember the two reasons why it did, actually. The first one was there was this commercial, and you still see it, it's for Northwell Health. And every time you see that commercial for Northwell Health, they show a corner, um, a street corner in Queens, and I recognize the street signs because I used to live near there. And um, having lived in Queens, New York, for about 25 years plus of my life, um, I get heartbroken by the pain and the suffering that's happened there during the course of the pandemic. That compiled with the fact there was a story of the the doctor who had um, contracted coronavirus, recovered, went back to work, and ended up killing herself. It was right around then that those the combination of those two things led me to what was my darkest day during the course, course of the pandemic. But I learned something significantly important then, which is something, and this is something which I would share with many people. We all are going to have dark days. You cannot repress uh, negative feelings when things are going bad. It's not, I'm not telling anybody not to feel bad things. People feel bad things when they see bad things. It's a very normal thing in human nature. But there is a way of handling that. You find people to talk to. You share it. You process it. You deal with it. You don't push it under the carpet and pretend that it doesn't exist. You get it out there. I did it. Um, I can honestly tell you that it, it, it took a day, which is very fortunate. But it was that one day during the course of the entire entire pandemic and um, self-isolation self -isolation or whatever you want to call it at home. I actually call it being guidelined more than I call it being um, the, the, I call it being guidelined because I think basically guidelines made us stay at home to some extent. Um, but it was only during that course of the time, that was that one day that it was at, at its worst. Right, keep it locked in right here. We're going to be right back. David, hang on. We'll continue. Solomon, WCWP 88.1 FM, taking care of business with David Grone. Now, Grone is a, a Dutch name, right? Yes, it is. How, it means, how do you pronounce it in Dutch? In Dutch, it's pronounced groen, which is actually the Dutch word for green, which um, incidentally makes playing the game of risk on a Dutch board a lot of fun because it's, there's a, there's a groen land. <laughs> Have you visited Holland numerous times in your life? I have. I would. I would actually say that um, I've been to Holland uh, more times than I can count. Because when I was 14 years old, my parents we moved from Philadelphia to Holland, and I went to high school in London for four years. And I would come home 
anywhere from three to five times a year, depending on when the holidays were, and, and I would spend summers there, and and I and I I got to know it quite well. Now there was a, a time that I didn't get to go there for about till from 2001 in June when I was there till last summer, uh, but um, before that time I had been to Holland. Some more like a, basically more times than I can really count. How is your working knowledge of the Dutch language? It's pretty good, actually. Yeah. It's I so okay. I, I'm sure that as when my my siblings hear this, they're going to start. They'll be laughing right about now, and they'll roll their eyes and say, "Yeah, sure it is." <laughs> um, my one of my brothers refers to my Dutch as "gebroken Afrikaans," which is basically saying calling it "broken Afrikaans." Um, my Dutch is very. Decent conversational Dutch for someone who does not live in Holland. That's the best way to describe it. Um, it's it's very flawed, um, but I could you can put me um, put me in the street and I can get by and I can talk to to almost anyone who's willing to talk slowly enough for me to understand them. Your mom, she was Sephardic. Yes, she is. Did she, she speak Ladino? Uh, no, she did not, but she took a lot of pride in the Sephardic uh, heritage that she came from. Her, her maiden name was Rodriguez Lopez. Uh, both of the name, both Rodriguez Lopez had S's at the end because um, she was primarily Portuguese descent. If it was Spanish, it would be Z, but primarily of Portuguese descent. Most of the Dutch Jews came from the, the Portuguese background, like the, the Spanish-Portuguese synagogue in Amsterdam, which is very famous. Which um, goes back to what the 1600s? Yeah, I, uh, uh, yeah, something like something that. like that. Yeah. yeah, I remember seeing pictures that the men wore top hats. <laughs> yeah, actually, when my trip last year to to Holland, which well, I think you know, we may be talking about, but in my trip last year to Holland, um, uh, I went to see the um, the Sephardic synagogue. I went to see the Portuguese synagogue, and we actually found uh, the names of some relatives, and actually found my parents of. My mother passed away three years ago, and my father passed away 13 years ago, but they had actually, uh, not unbeknownst to us, had actually not only become members of the synagogue, but they made their children members as well. Oh, wow. It's a nice surprise. So you're a member? Apparently so. Wow. <laughs> yeah. So let's talk about why you were back in Holland last year. Okay, Let's great. talk about it, because that's a very moving an important story that has never been told on these airwaves. Right. So, uh, as we have spoken about, and as you mentioned so kindly, I did write the book Jewface, a story of love and heroism in Nazi-occupied Holland, which did chronicle the events that took place between, primarily between 1940 and 1945 with my parents. And um, as I also mentioned, my mother lost, she had a, she had a young brother, brother, younger brother named Bram, uh, who was uh, almost a little a little shy of three years younger than she was. Um, she was born on January 1st. He was born on October 15th. And when she was 13 and he was 10, their, their mother passed away. So it was her brother and her father until the war broke out. And a little over a year ago, I received a message from a man in Holland asking me, if I am the closest living relative to Bram Rodriguez, born in Holland in 1925, killed in Auschwitz in 1943. Well, everything about that told me immediately that he was referring to my mother's brother. And I responded in kind, and he told me that the reason he was reaching out to me was that his father and my brother, I'm excuse me, his father and my mother's brother uh, 
were close friends before the war. They played in a band together. His father played guitar, and my uncle played violin. And before my uncle tried to escape Amsterdam together with my grandfather, only to be picked up at the Belgian border and ultimately be ultimately taken to Auschwitz and murdered in Auschwitz, my uncle Bram went to this man's father and asked him if he could look after his violin until he got back. As I mentioned, my uncle didn't make it back, but that didn't stop the man from looking after the violin till the day he died about eight years ago. He passed the house on and everything in all the rooms to his only son, who in turn found the violin and didn't think that my uncle had any living relatives until, because of the book, True Face, and because of revisiting his father's diary and finding the last name, Rodriguez, from, he was able to locate me online, contacted me, and told me that he wanted to return the violin to its rightful heirs, which were me and my siblings. Uh, upon hearing this, I felt that this remarkable situation was worth more than just taking a trip over to Holland, having dinner with him, and saying thank you. So together with his help, I put together an event in Amsterdam, in the same neighborhood where my mother lived with her brother and father and where this man was born and grew up, and his father was friends with with Bram. Put together an event in which there were 65 people at the event, including a member of the Israeli embassy, uh, someone from the organization Friends of Yad Vashem, and um, a representative from the Holocaust Museum in Washington, D.C., at which point, at this event, the man presented the violin back to me and my siblings. And um, it was it was truly remarkable. I got the violin back from the man, and um, uh, really, really incredibly moving story. A wonderful guy um, who really understood and 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 had a good handle on on how special the relationship was between my uncle and his father. Really remarkable. So, what was the father's name? With when? What is the son's name? So, the man who contacted me contacted me. His name is Vim Dahan. Vim, W-I-M in Dutch is pronounced Vim, last name Dehan, and his father's name was Johnny Dehan. And um, he and Bram and a, and a few other friends from the neighborhood, they had a band, which they, put together, they, they played in a band. They played um, music which is known as Hot Club de France. And I don't know if you've ever heard it, but it's very similar to big band type of music. Like swing but, music? It's, sorry? Is it like swing yeah, it's yeah. got a very yeah swing type of feel to it. Feel swing, um, big band type of music. It's just, it's really, uh, it's a very pleasant, upbeat type of upbeat sound. And um, are there uh, any any recordings of their music that survived to this day? Not that I'm aware of. Okay. Not that I've been made aware of or have ever heard. Uh, it was it's hard enough actually to go to find actually recordings of. Anything that's classified as Hot Club de France, I actually did uh, find a re- find something, and I actually played it on a loop as uh, the the event started last year in Holland. I had uh, pictures being displayed of of my uncle and Johnny and the band, and while I had the Hot Club de France music played constantly on a loop, it was, it was kind of cool. How, how old was your uncle when he was murdered? He was um, just shy of just shy of his nineteenth birthday. Right. Eighteen years old. Wow. Yeah. And there, there's a couple of pictures that that exist to this day of him. 
Oh yes, I quite, quite actually uh, quite a few a few pictures definitely. A few of the young a few pictures of him uh, young with my with my mother and a few a picture of him in the band and a picture of there's an actually I actually refer to it almost like an as an iconic picture. It's the picture that growing up um, that's the image I have from of him sitting at a desk. It's interesting too. Until this whole thing happened, I always referred to him as my mother's brother. It wasn't until till Johnny till Vim DeHaan contacted me that he became my uncle. He was always my uncle, but in in essence, in terms, he became he, he uh, came to life for me in a way that he never had before. Did did anyone other than your mother tell you anything about him when you were over in Holland? Uh, there's stuff. There's a few, there's a few things that uh, Vim had a diary of his father, and. Um, you could tell a little bit from talking to Vim that he had a little bit of an idea of the relationship that um, that his father had with Brom. But the the reality of it is, and, and this is one of the reasons why I feel so so awestruck and so grateful for the opportunity to, in essence, give my uncle a legacy. That the only thing that was really left of my uncle after um, after the war was my mother. And when my mother passed away, in many ways, it looked like his memory would pet, would would go too. Uh, because of, yes, she shared uh, a lot of information, and one of my brother's names, his son, one of his sons, his youngest son, Brom. But beyond that, there wasn't really that much uh, to go by. And, um, and this this is something which obviously this is this is in many ways his legacy. Could you talk about the violin itself? What kind of a violin? Is it, and how does it sound, and uh, you know, just what was the personality of the violin? Uh, that's a, that's a, a, a wonderful question asked because it tells, it can, I can tell you about uh, another uh, wonderful, a few wonderful things that have happened since the violin uh, came back to us. So the violin, um, it was constructed, it, was, it, was, it goes back to the uh, early 20th, very early 20th century, and it, although it has labels on the inside um, of, a, of Dutch uh, violin companies, uh, when I came back to Long Island where I live, I, I went to a violin place and had it restored. And the, the person who restored it was fairly certain. He was, at first he thought that it might have been um, manufactured in Germany. Uh, originally built in Germany, but then he thinks that it may actually go back to France instead. How far back? Not that far back. I mean, it's not a 300-year-old violin, but um, probably back going probably going back to either France or Germany. The, it needed work, obviously, to get back to playing condition, but it did go back to playing condition. And in December, in my brother's uh, Chabad synagogue in South Palm Beach, Florida, we had an, uh, an event where the violin was played for the first time in 75 years. Wow. And then we had another event uh, put, I put together in February um, where we had in a um, in, in Williamsburg, Virginia, an event where uh, 200 people from the, from the community, from the Jewish and non-Jewish part of the, the community came together, and uh, there was a concert at which the violin was, was featured. The violin plays beautifully. It's it just, I mean, let's, the reality is, okay, so I'm not a violin player and I, I'm not a, no expert. So to me, for me to say it sounds beautiful, 
um, is one thing, but the uh, the violinist who played, a very accomplished man named Ken Sarge, um, he um, he said that the violin was was in a remarkably good condition, especially after all that time of not being used and being being stored away. Right, it wasn't stored in a temperature controlled, you know, uh, you know, uh, you know, you know, moisture controlled, uh, you know, vault or anything like that. Correct, correct. But it was, however, treated with respect. It was cleaned and it was taken care of, um, which I think is why that, although it needed to be restored, it was still restorable. What was the first song that was played when the instrument was reintroduced? Theme from Schindler's List. Wow. Yeah. Wow. What else did they play? That you remember? Uh, it, there was a theme. There was a. It was um, as per, per the request of the Chabad Rabbi. There was a an old an old Hasidic um, theme that was played, um, and there was there was one other song, but I don't. I'm not recalling it. The names of the actual songs I could. I'd have to look up, but um, but I. I I know that one of them was was a an old Hasidic um, tune, and it just it just played beautifully. Was, a, it, this the, was back; they had a piano uh, accompanying them. Was the news media there at the time? Yes, there was uh, WCBS uh, News in um, South Florida was there. My my I was interviewed together with my brother Leo, who um, whose synagogue it was, and and the violin player Ken Sarch was interviewed as well. I made a presentation, uh, about a 15, 20-minute presentation at the event, so I could share the story with the people before they actually heard the violin being played. Can people access this on the Internet somewhere? The, yes. Yeah, where would yes. they go? Um, actually, the easiest way to find it is um, to type, if you Google Holocaust Violin and then WPEC in Florida, okay. it should come up. And uh, it's really, they did it, it was the, they did a really, they did a nice segment. They did like a five, ten minute segment on the news. Wow, that's good, because the, yeah. the news is more soundbitey, so this is a great tribute to a great event. Yeah, it was really, uh, the, the, news, the newscaster was, an, it was a man named Jay O'Brien. He did a phenomenal job. Now, are you going to write more extensively about this experience? Well, as it, as it so happens, I'm in the process of putting something together now. I'm working on a project now um, where I'm telling the expanded story of my mother's life, Brahm's life, and and how everything ultimately led back to the violin. Uh, the story of my parents during the war is a remarkable story. And there's obviously, there's no, I can never tell a story of my mother without obviously including the story uh, of how my father um, was was such an important part of her life but there are other parts of the story that go beyond before my um, before my mother met my father and and the story of Brum and my and my grandfather and and the relationship between Johnny and Brum and and ultimately the violin coming back into our hands I'm working on that project now yeah. so hopefully that um, that's that will really it'll tell uh, go into more detail about the events that took place. All right. Let's take a quick break. This is Richard Solomon, WCWP 88.1 FM. The show is Taking Care of Business. My guest is David Grohn. And if it was Dutch, it would be, what was it? David Grohn. <laughs> Grohn. <laughs> All right. Stay tuned. 
we're back. Richard Salmon with David Grubb. And uh, his book is, well, the book that I we, we had on our show many, many years ago was Jew Face. And it was about his parents. And it's an incredible story. And the one thing I have to sort of reiterate is that I actually been to Holland, uh, met his parents in Holland, in Zonfort, and heard the story live from them. Uh, and, and not only did I hear the story, but I got to see the story through, with a walkthrough, you know, on the very streets where a lot of the, the events unfolded. And, and it, was so, it was told in such a poignant and, and articulate and intellectual way um, by, uh, by a brilliant man. And, you know, we've been lucky enough to capture, uh, you know, David's mother, um, support on, on audio. And she told her story too. And it's important. Those, those are very necessary stories. And just as the stories are right now of all the struggles that people are going through the pandemic, and I, I and so let's loop that back in. So, David, are you writing anything or, or working on projects involving sort of the whole shelter in place and some of the things that are happening right now? I am, yes. Uh, I see. I, I recognize the fact that um, from the very beginning there was something very remarkable about what was going on when people are going through something difficult. One of their favorite lines to say to the people they know is, "You have no idea what I'm going through." <laughs> well, this is this is a rare situation in which you almost have never heard that, because almost everyone was going through the same thing, but under different circumstances. And in that sense, it was kind of it, it was it's been kind of remarkable. Now, again, I have to I want to start off by saying something very important here. I there are there are two categories when talking about the pandemic. There are the categories of the people who have lo- who have either been passed away or lost a loved one. Those are those that category. That is a category of people who have suffered uh, tremendously, and um, I can't even. I don't even want to begin to imagine that suffering. I've known. I have. There are people that I know that have passed through the course of this. Um, but if they are like, if they're, I know someone. If they're they're a parent or if they're a spouse, that's that's a different level. But when you go to everyone else, that's everyone else like you and me and and most of the people that I know, we all have gone through a very unprecedented, bizarre time, and we've had our difficulties through this through the course of this time. But we also are in a position to to grow from this, and I have just taken it upon myself to to also be put together um, a, some stories based on my personal experiences and how I feel my experiences during the course of this time can help other people with their perspectives. You know, I look back to in the month of February, prior to this whole thing happened. Well, actually, let me even go back further. Let me go back to last July, which is when the event took place in, in Amsterdam for the violin. If it had been a year later, the event would have been canceled. This wouldn't have happened obviously. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. And I come back with a violin and I have, we have the event in December in South Palm beach, which was wonderful. But February was a different, different type of month for me. I drove down to, I went, I started in New York, drove down 
via Philadelphia, went to Williamsburg, Virginia, made a stop, met the people that I was going to be doing the event with, drove down to Florida, spent time in Florida, came up, made a few other stops on the way in the Carolinas, and ended up back in Williamsburg where we had the event. And by the grace of God, was in a situation in which I had one of the most extraordinary months of my life, one month before the entire society shut down. Now, uh, the way I look at it is I'll go back to a time, uh, previous time in my life, when um, I was witness to actually a personal, witness to a personal miracle. And I said to someone once, I would said to once to a Hasidic gentleman, I said to him, I'm lucky for two reasons. I'm lucky to have been to have had this miracle in my life, and I'm lucky to have been able to be able to be to to be able to recognize that it was a miracle. And I'll never forget it because the man who was very very pious, strict Hasidic Jew, a tear came rolling down his face, and he said, "That is pure faith." He said to me, "Just to feel that way." I was very honored by the way he looked at it, and and I and I feel that um, there, are, there are messages that you can take from your experiences, lessons that you can learn. Um, you can, for example, you know, I live alone, okay? Something which would normally be irrelevant to mention in the course of a radio interview. But during the course of a pandemic, it's, it's relevant. And I have constantly said over the course of the, of, of the years that I've lived alone that I'm not someone who is lonely. Why am I not lonely? Because if I want to, I can get together with friends. I can go visit family. I can go out and just go somewhere where there are people, and I can and I won't feel lonely. And I admitted that in the course of the first few a week or couple of weeks or so of the of the, um, the isolation at home, that I had felt loneliness for the first time in that I can remember. And I said to my, I saw that it was something which, as opposed to being a negative, it was a learning opportunity. It was a learning opportunity to see what I could do uh, on my own, how I could grow as an individual, what I could do. So I spent the time writing. I spent the time, a little bit of the time, started doing, uh, increasing my bike riding. I, I communicated with people on a regular basis. I strengthened some of the, the relationships that I had with people. I reached out to people that I hadn't spoken to in a while. Uh, and, I, and primarily, and I, and I tried to spread the message, so to speak, of, of hope and encouragement. And I utilized that time in a, in a beneficial way and found that um, the truth of the matter is that if you have a roof over your head, if you have your health, you have a roof over your head and you have food to eat, you really don't have anything to complain about. You, have, you, can, you can have an ambition to get more. Ambition is fine, but you really have nothing to complain about. And that's the basic premise of, of, of so much of what I'm going to be, be mentioning in, the, in that project. Well, what's interesting is uh, one of my earlier segments on the uh, COVID-19 crisis, I interviewed uh, people who were basically born in the 19, you know, the late part of the 1920s, early part of the 1930s. And they talked about what it was like growing up the Great Depression, uh, living through World War II. They were um, you know, children growing up during those very tough times. And, and I really explored with them, you know, hardships, loss, rationing, uncertainty, um, no, no real news, you know, 
you know, remember in those days the the news came on newsreels, right? And um, you know, to to find out what was going on, you you know, maybe it was radio, um, but it wasn't like it is today where there's a mouse click and you can see what's going on or you can connect with people. Think, think about what the internet did for you connecting with the gentleman who gave the violin to you. Oh, and, absolutely. Right. Cause uh, uh, yes. it doesn't happen. It, it probably, it's very unlikely that it ever happens if not for the internet. Right. So the internet was an incredible tool that really didn't exist, uh, you know, for people to connect. And I guess, even when it was around older people, maybe in one country and with different language capabilities may not have been able to connect to people in this country, you know? So, so the internet is an incredible thing to connect people. On the other hand, uh, you know, uh, we're, we're all apart. And I know that there's slogans that we're all, we're all, in, we're all alone together, Yeah, but it's, it's, it's challenging. It's challenging. Um, all of our, the ways that we do things are, are completely different. Even- well, let me actually let me. So you, you mentioned a few things, which is a part of what I'm going to the things that I'm working on now. And one of the things I should tell you, I should say to you, is that um, the internet, in some ways, gets a and the social media in general, in some ways, gets a bad rap. And I'll tell you why, because it's only as good it's it's only as good or as bad as the people who are using it. If you use it, if you use it for the right purposes, yes. Look, like any other situation in life, you have to be aware of bad, of bad actors, of course. But that's like any other part of life. You have to be aware that there could be a bad actor anywhere around the corner, and you have to always be alert and be careful for that on some levels. But if you use the Internet for positive purposes, then, then very often positive, you get positive purposes back. You have communications with people that really can mean something to you. I want to tell you, and I'm not, without getting into too much, without getting into details on this, I just will say this, and this is a very general statement. I can honestly tell you, you know, the cliche, that's the nicest thing anyone's ever said to me. In the course of this pandemic, someone said something to me on the internet that was literally the nicest thing that anyone has ever said to me. Okay. And that's a beautiful thing to be yeah, able to yeah. say. Um, so it is, is, I think it goes back to, um, Part of the, the there was such an important lesson of, of all of this too is that um, if if we focus on ourselves in the sense that worry about what we do right and wrong as opposed to trying to find what other people are doing right and wrong or trying to show everybody how smart we are by how we are going to save the world instead if we focus on making ourselves better people and looking for people that we can actually help and actually spread that to and actually make feel better. Even if it's just one person, you've accomplished something. Well, that's what we try to do on this radio show. You know, we try to reach people and give them information and tools, insights and access that, you know, you know, hopefully opens uh, windows and ideas out there. And, but you also try to, you try to do this in your blogs. Absolutely. Absolutely. And and I'll tell you, I, I'm not I'm not ashamed to say that it's it, I've learned that uh, one of the reasons I do it is selfish because when you when you're trying to when you're focusing on helping people, you feel better than when you are too focused on on yourself. It's it's it, again, it goes back to what I said before. It's good to be ambitious and it's good to work on yourself and and try it and try to grow and and make your life better every day. But self indulgence is not healthy. And if you are if you're going to spend your time just worrying about what you what you want and what you feel, 
as opposed to trying to find ways to, to help people, you're not going to be as happy. It is it actually one of the things that has gotten me through this time is my efforts to to help people. And, and yeah, there are some people that I've, I've had no impact on, but I've had I've heard from plenty of people that what I've done, things I've said, things I've written, things I've texted, whatever it is, certain communications I've had with people have literally helped people. And and that is a that makes you feel it gives you strength when you need it most. Do you do you get interesting feedback that you could share? Um, Just you know, not, yes, yeah, I'll yeah. tell you. I actually tell you that I think the most the most um, rewarding feedback that I've gotten through the course of the entire time was um, a rabbi in my neighborhood. And um, uh, I'm gonna, I'm spe- uh, yeah, I'm gonna actually, I'm speaking very highly of him here, saying nothing but, but good things. Is uh, there's two, there's two, there's a few Orthodox synagogues in my neighborhood, and one of the rabbis is a rabbi named Rabbi Friedman. And uh, Rabbi Friedman's mother passed away oh. right around the same time, almost the same day, or the day before, the day after, or just the same day as one of his closest um, congregants died of the coronavirus. His mother passed away of natural causes, but then within the same, within a 24-hour period, something around within a 24-hour period, he also, a congregant that we all know from the neighborhood, I know, I knew as well, uh, passed away from the coronavirus, a 60-year-old man. And Rabbi Friedman, the day after his mother died, had to go to a cemetery with a mask on and gloves and and only a few handful of people and do conduct through the funeral for for this gentleman who passed away. And I'm look, I'm I'm look at this and I'm kind of helpless. Like I can't even imagine what kind of strength you have to have to do this. So I thought, what can I do? So I consider him a friend, so I sent him a message. And I basically said sent something along the lines of that um, I am truly in awe of the strength that you've shown during the course of this time. I know this has to be very difficult for you personally, as well as as just exhausting. And I just wish you all the strength. And it was a Friday, and I said to him, I wish you all the peace that the Sabbath, that the Shabbat can give you, that it can really gives you that. And he wrote back to me, he said, David, thank you so much for that very meaningful message. Huh? Words matter. You know? The words matter. Words they matter. Do. And attitude matters and positivity matters. So um, are there any other stories? We only have like just a tiny bit of time left here. It's amazing how fast it it goes. Are there any other stories or insights generally from your blogging or your perspectives that you want to share as a a closing comment? Let me think. Um, I would say... Or any 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 particular feedback or any. Particular- well, yeah, I would say that this is what I, I guess this is not a, not a particular story, but I would I would say that it's a theme that I I've try always try to apply to my life, and and I'm finding the reaping to some extent the benefits of it right now. I believe very much in the in the in the in, in only trying to control the things that you can control. That's very difficult. This is a situation that is extremely 
difficult for a person who wants to control everything. There are people out there who are very controlling and wish they want to control everything in their environment. And if you're one of those people, this pandemic has got to be terrible for you. It's got to be just something that's got to be, I can't even imagine what it would be like to be that person. Fortunately, that's not me. I'm the kind of person who I believe, let me control those things that I can't control. And, and I found that in doing so, I've actually even feel like I've kind of controlled the narrative of my life. I've controlled, um, I've, 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 I've had some degree, a certain type of schedule. I've had a certain type of things that I've accomplished, things that I felt good about, relationships that have been solid, uh, getting closer to some, even feeling like I'm getting closer to some family members. Um, I think that if you look at anything in life, any situation, and you don't try to control the things that you can't control, you're a lot better off. You're, gonna, you're, you're a lot better off than if you think you can. And believe me, as a society, as a whole, we've never been in a situation where we've been less in control over what happens. The, the experts don't even know from one week to the next necessarily what's right and what's wrong. So we certainly can't control. But we, what we can't control is we can control what we do. We can control how we treat people. We control that whether or not we show patience and consideration and, and love to the people around us. We do that. We only help. All right. Well said, and we're out of time. David Grohn, thank you so much. You're in, and it's hollandheroes.com? Yes, it is. All righty. Thank you, Richard. Stay well, everybody. 